What's going on, everybody? This is Ryan Henry, and welcome to 180, where we get to share amazing stories of Christian transformation from around the world. These stories will literally blow your mind. Follow us on your favorite podcast player, or you can visit us at 180podcast.com. That's O-N-E-80podcast.com. Yeah. I'm like, look, thank you so much for being so generous, but really? Is this what you want to do? I mean, I'm handling your money. You don't want me handling your money, handling your drugs. And uh, they will say nothing. I said, plus, I don't know anything. I'm 21 years old, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> American dream to America's nightmare. That's who Jorge Valdez had become. Raised in Cuba, Jorge made a name for himself in the U.S. as one of the top drug lords in the 70s and the 80s. The man who could buy presidents and dignitaries was brought to his knees by a simple man with a different sword, the word of God. A simple man who was literally face to face with one of the country's most powerful men with a bold challenge. Man, what I've got to give you, you have no money to pay. Freedom was about to come his way. Welcome to Jorge's 180. Jorge, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a, an incredible story. And I mean, just to have this opportunity to hear about your life, uh, really honored. So um, let's get rolling because I know there's a lot to get into. Um, but we'd like to start off with a random question, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. So if you were traveling back to the, the year 1850, okay, and you could take with you one invention or product from the modern era, what would you take with you? One invention. Yeah. I'd probably be thankful that we don't have media, that we don't have, I mean, Facebook and all those things. Uh, they have, uh, we're intended to do good. I mean, they've brought farther away friends close, but they've taken our close friends away. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it'd be, well, probably my Corvette, you know? Yeah. I love Corvette. I love, I'm a car guy, but yeah. I mean, a big Corvette. Corvette fan. American made. Yes, that's right. I'm sure that would turn heads back in the 1850s. They would be pretty impressed by that. I think they'd be pretty cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's jump into your story. And would you just uh, talk to our listeners about where you grew up? So I grew up in a, in a town outside of Havana, Cuba, called Santiago de Las Vegas. Uh, I, I lived there until I was 10 years old. And what it was, it was a time when Fidel had already been in power right. for seven years. Mm-hmm. And we were in school. And uh, I remember Cuba in school, they have what they call the pioneers, which mm-hmm. is like pretty much what we would think of as like the Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. But they were an integral part of your education. Hmm. What Fidel was genius about was that when a child turned 12 years of age, uh, what he would do is he would take you away from your parents and he would send you to Miami. Hmm. So in school, we were starting to be taught the Communist Manifesto, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the Communist Ideal. Right. God doesn't exist. God is only something for a weak people to find meaning, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 uh, to control the masses. (laughs) I would go home, and I had a mother who was 4'11", extremely Catholic, (laughs) and she would tell me, Fidel's full of crap. God is everything (laughs) in our house. I mean, in Cuba, every neighborhood the center of the community was a church. So wherever you went in that community to visit anyone, the place you had to go through was the church, the yeah. courtyard of the church, as you see in a lot of Mexican uh, or even Latin American country. Mm. So God was everything at home. Yeah. But in school, God was nothing. Yeah, yeah. My mother said, I'm not going to have any of this. Now, the reason Fidel broke up the family was because 
I would come home from school and tell my mom, and my mom would tell me that Fidel's full of crap, but I didn't go tell the teacher <laughs> Fidel's, hey, my mom said Fidel's full of crap. <laughs> but if I was living with strangers and I would go ahead and say something like that, it was 10-year prison sentence. Oh, wow. So he broke up the family. So by 12, you had to get out of Cuba, your kids. Otherwise, you know, it would be impossible. So my mother, uh, you know, who her father was one of the most important figures in Cuban history uh, in the uh, liberation of Cuba from Spain. She was an amazing woman. Uh, she spoke perfect English. She was mm. one of four women to graduate from the University of Havana. Wow. So my mother didn't care nothing about And I mean, because she came from such a strong political family. I mean, yeah. not political, but very influential family. Yeah. She was very uh, opinionated. Mm. You know, I said that, uh, thank God that God made her 4'11". <laughs> if he made her 5'2". <laughs> Osama Bin Laden would have had nothing on my father. <laughs> so my father was different. My mm-hmm. father was your typical Catholic man back then, a man of immense integrity, mm-hmm. a man that wow. uh, he would not go to church. He, uh, as close as he would get to church was to drop us off. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was simply like, hey, my faith is private. All I ask God is to bless my family. That's mm-hmm. all he cared about. That's yeah. what he would say as far as religion. Yeah. But my mom was different. My mm-hmm. mom was, I mean, we were in church literally every day. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, she decides we're leaving. Now, when you live in Cuba, you're leaving everything behind. Mm -hmm. And all you can leave is literally with your underwear, a pair of pants, one belt, one pair of socks, whatever you're wearing that moment, Mm -hmm. that's all you could take. Wow. And I remember being woken up in the morning at about 4.30, and she's like, let's go. We're leaving. Well, I didn't know. What do you mean we're leaving? Where are we going? I thought we were going on vacation because we went on a lot of vacations. My parents were very wealthy. Yeah. She's like, just get dressed and let's go. Well, I said, Mom, let me pack some. And she's like, no, just get dressed. And we went. Wow. And I remember I was sort of like a like a zombie going to the airport. Had no clue what was going on. And, you, and you're 10, is this 10 years old? I, about? I, yeah, this is October of 1966. Okay. I was 10 years old, five months. So, but we get to the airport. And that's when she thought, we're going to Miami. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, as we're about to leave, as we were the last family, because Valdez, the last name, hmm. she comes crying. And my father's like, I'm not going. And she grabs my hand and my brother and my sister. And she said, take him to Miami. I'll see you someday. And literally oh my, my world just died. My father was like, if you don't go, I'm not going to go. He never wanted to leave to begin with. But as he saw us climbing into the airplane, going to a tarmac, he came. He mm-hmm. came with us. And we came to Miami. And, hmm. and we went from living in a house that was one square block with cars, television, everything, to 11 of us living in a one-bedroom apartment, writing down what time we were going to pee because there was only one bathroom. Oh, my gosh. Sleeping on the floor. Wow, wow. And I, I look at my life as three cataclysmic moments. And that was number one. Hmm. That was the moment that I said to myself, you know what? Castro was right. My mom is full of crap. There ain't no God. Wow, what yeah. God? We're coming to be with God? Where is he? Yeah. You know, we were with Castro's God in Cuba, but we had food. We had everything. Now we have nothing. And she's not even here, which mm. is she was the center of our home. Yeah. My father was just a man of immense integrity, and he would not take a handout from the government. We had no food. All we would have is a glass of this powdered milk that the refugee that you get from the refugee department. Mm. Real cheap. You had to buy it. It didn't mix. It was just like drinking sand water. Mm. And uh, two raw eggs, and that's all oh. we had till dinner time. Oh my gosh! Wow! And dinner time we had rice and beans. That's mm-hmm. it. And I remember uh, a friend of mine that he uh, he brought a lunch, uh, and I'm like, man, that to me was like a prime rib. I mean, <laughs> it was like a big old. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, hey, how do your parents get your sandwich? 
He's like, well, we get food stamps. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, we get these little coupons. And I'm like, really? He said, yeah, we buy food with that. The, the government gives it to you. You don't have to pay for it. So I thought I had discovered the Americas. I'm going to go tell my father that, hey, we're going to be able to eat, buddy, because I found out yeah. something you don't know. Yeah. I come and tell my dad, and my dad is very stoic. And he just nods his head, and he's like, uh, son, that's for poor people. Hmm. I'm like, holy crap. We're not even poor yet? <laughs> you mean we got to climb our way out of poverty somehow? <laughs> And I said, Dad, we're not poor. He's like, no, son. We just don't have any money. Wow. And then he put his finger on my chest and he says, wake up early and go help feed your family. I was 10 years old. Wow. And, you know, I, I teach, I coach some people mindset. Mm. You know, because I tell people, it doesn't matter what you look at the world. It doesn't matter what through what lenses you look at it. I remember my cousin would come like four years earlier. Mm -hmm. He came up and he came up in a... 1965 Pontiac GTO convertible, candy apple with a white interior. Man, I looked at that <laughs> car, and I'm like, that is it. That's what I'm going to do. Goals, the day baby. I had that car, yeah, I made it in America. Yeah. Until then, don't matter. So I'm just going to buzz my butt, and I'm going to do it the right way. And uh, so I became the youngest employee in the Federal Reserve Bank at the age of 17, and I worked wow. full-time. And I went to University of Miami full-time at night. And I never did any drugs. Uh, all the alcohol I had drank in my life by the age of 21 mm. fit in a little teacup. Uh -huh. I never even had a girlfriend before. Yeah. Because I had no <laughs> time in my life. Right, right. Didn't drink, didn't do drugs, nothing. I was like laser focused. You know, mm. I'm going to graduate. Uh, I'm going to take a two years off, get enough money to go to law school because back then there was no student loan. Mm. And then I'm going to go to law school. And by the age of 30, I'm going to be a millionaire and I'm going to be somebody. Right. Don't talk to me about God. Don't talk to me about any of this because it doesn't mean nothing to me. Mm. I did it that way until a friend of mine, first accounting professor, he had just moved from uh, Michigan to Miami. And he's like, uh, hey, I don't speak Spanish. If you handle my Spanish clients, I'll give you a secretary, office, everything you want. Wow. And you can be on your own. Because you, know, you all do know that Spanish is the language of heaven. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to talk to Jesus, mm -hmm. learn Spanish. <laughs> if not, you're in trouble. <laughs> you know? And this, this is while you're at the Federal Reserve. Is that yeah, right? Okay. Yeah, I'm at the Federal Reserve. I had an entrepreneur spirit. To help feed my family, I delivered newspaper. I washed cars. I cut grass. I did whatever I had to do to be able to make it so that yeah. whatever little money we came, we could eat besides rice and beans. Yeah. Maybe we could get a piece of steak and divide it among four. Yeah, you know, on yeah. the weekends. Yeah, and that's how I did it until that mm. first client. Wow. Now, in this time period, so you you know you leave Cuba, you're now in Little Havana. Your perspective of God, you kind of are just like, okay, this God is not. He's not. He's not there. He's not real. And that's kind of where you were. Yeah, I right? mean, the conflict that was inside my mind between Castro's teaching and my mother's teaching. The minute we came to Miami and we laid in the floor, and yeah. she stayed behind. Yeah, Castro won. Yeah, you know, and that's it. But the interesting wow. thing is, even, you know, because I was an atheist for a long, long time. Mm. You know, I, I really wonder, I'm going to throw this in, you might want to edit that out. But <laughs> I really wonder if my conversion would have been today, in today's world, with today's Christian environment, if I would have ever become a Christian. Hmm. I really would wonder that. Hmm. You know, we are the only Bible somebody ever will ever see. Hmm. And today... So as a Christian, we are pretty bad witness. I'm not mm. saying, oh, and I thank God for what you're doing. Yeah. And I and I love all those young people here. Yeah. Because you're the future of it. 
Yeah. But you're fighting a big wave. Yeah. And yeah. the good news is at the end, Jesus will always win. Yes. So Amen. I, <laughs> I, I stand up on that. But it, but it is. Yeah. Because now I'm going to university in, in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. And think about this. This is the time that Karl Marx writes the Communist Manifesto, you know, Das Kapital. So every Hispanic in the world, we want to be a communist. Yeah. Because we looked at communism as an ideal, right? Everybody's going to be equal. Everything's going to be fine. Society's fair. We know that it, it doesn't exist, but it was. But because I was not a Christian, didn't never want to be a Christian, didn't believe in anything, mm-hmm. I was a person of immense integrity. Hmm. And, uh, and in reality, most of the people I knew that were of no faith had tremendous integrity. Yeah. I remember my father over and over and over again, and we were, my brother and I would get so mad because we said, this is like a broken record. Son, in life, you have no control whether you're rich or poor. I'm like, nah, I could figure that out. Hmm. Whether you're sick or healthy, hmm. no control whether you're dead or alive. You only have one thing, one thing, absolutely you have total control, and that's your word. Uh, I think that you're, you've got a really good point here, you know, about that. But if we could go, could you talk to us about the La Puerta del Sol grocery store? Uh, because this is where your, your first Spanish-speaking client, right? Yeah. Um, talk to us about what happened, because that was a pretty life-changing uh, little store there yeah. for you. See, this is why I deviate just to see whether you read the book or not. <laughs> but, so that, that first client that my professor asked me to, to do for him mm-hmm. was a little grocery store. Mm-hmm. If, if you go to Miami, this shopping center, little store, you know, probably about 15 feet wide, maybe 40 feet deep. And, uh, and I went there and I had to go. So I'm making like almost $4 an hour back then. This is 1976, almost $4 an hour. I think the minimum wage was like $1.50, $1.80, something like that. So wow. I'm like making a lot of money, but I'm yeah. dead broke, right? Yeah, yeah. Because half of my paycheck went to my parents, and the other half I had to pay all my expenses. Wow. And uh, and now they're going to pay me $1,000 a month to go there four Mondays a month for about a couple hours every day and get them organized. And I thought, wow, I was going to be rich. Yeah. So I went there the first uh, Monday. And I never forget, I go to the back and they had this paper bag <laughs> that you get at the grocery stores and it had like $135,000. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right, that's normal. And I looked at it. and uh, But the thing about it was I was so innocent about any of that yeah. that I didn't even think nothing about no it. No idea. Yeah. You know, like, I'm like, wow, man, how can this little thing, you know, and I start thinking, well, maybe they just haven't deposited in a long time. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, did the books, took the money, made a, a deposit, went to a bank and deposited it. Nothing said, nothing, no harm, no done. Right. The next Monday I go and there's about 70 some $80,000. Oh my gosh. Now I start to wonder how they're <laughs> making so much money. So I remember looking at this can of Campbell's soup. Yeah. And it was dusty. <laughs> so I got it and I, and I put a V on top with the dust mm. for Valdez. And I put it in the desk, and I left it there. Took the money, did the deposit, went back. The third week, same amount of money, over $100. Now, I got to find out really what's going on. <laughs> Again, no thinking that there's no drugs or nothing illegal or nothing. So I called them over, and I'm like, uh, his name was Albert. I said, look, let me give you a basic uh, accounting formula. You buy this can, and I got the can <laughs> for a dollar, <laughs> and you sell it for $3, and you got $2 profit. You, you follow me? Mm-hmm. I said, the thing is, the last three weeks, I've deposited over $300,000 <laughs> worth of so-called sales, 
but we've only bought about $1,800 worth of products. <laughs> Something's not matching up here. I know there's not that much of a markup in a can of soup. Right. <laughs> and uh, he just nonchalant looked at me and said, oh, no, we're drug dealers. We, oh we just, this is just to hang out to have fun. <laughs> I'm like, so now think about it. a kid that used to pride himself. I work for the government. You know, I don't, I, if I went to, if I ever went any place and there was any marijuana, which back then was nothing, right? Mm. I would leave. No, I'm a federal employee. I can't do this. I didn't have a traffic ticket. You know, all of that stuff. Suddenly find out I'm working for drug dealers. Yeah. Well, I said to myself, very quick, I mean, it shocked me. It shocked me for about, I think about uh, maybe 25 seconds because I said, hey, I'm an accountant. You know, I'm trained to count money. There's no money laundering laws. There's none of that. And uh, I don't care what people do with their lives. Mm. And, uh. And I was fine with it. So he looked at me and says, since you work for the government, right? I said, he said, yeah. He says, uh, you know how to open a foreign bank account. And it just happened that we knew because of a case the Federal Reserve Bank audited where they busted these banks mm. that, uh, you know, they had three banks, one in the Cayman, and they were, uh, every time one note came due, they, they make another note from the other bank. Anyway, mm. big old scam. Mm. They all got busted. And uh, I said, sure. And I knew that it was about 1100 bucks to open mm. a foreign bank account. And he asked me, like, how much? I said, $10,000. I mean, I just threw a number. Like, I didn't even know where this conversation was going. Didn't think it was going nowhere. Didn't really care. Right. It's just like, you know, we're talking about the weather. Hey, yeah. what color car you like? Yeah. Yellow. I don't know. <laughs> so he's like, well, can you open three? Now I'm like, three? Hmm. He said, yeah, we have currency restrictions in Colombia. and We want to protect our money. So we need you to open three accounts for us. Wow. And I'm like, sure. So I went and... uh and opened those three accounts. And then from there on, I started opening accounts for them all over. Liechtenstein, Tortola, Switzerland. And my life began to change, right? Hmm. So I used to drive a Chevrolet Vega, gray, with black vinyl interior. <laughs> the only air condition was 240, which means you lower both windows and hit 40. That's about all the air condition. <laughs> oh, that was all the wealth I owned in this world. Yeah. So what created the second cataclysmic moment? So from there on, I mean, a lot of things be began to happen really, really quickly. Like they wanted to open up a banana company. And he introduces me to the people that were his bosses, mm -hmm. right? I meet them. They, all, they were business people. They own a lot of companies. They own airlines, emerald mines, coal mines, construction companies. I mean, these people were business people. It just happened that one of the products they sold was cocaine. You know, recently when they asked me on Netflix, why was it that it was so easy for you to leave when Chapo, Pablo Escobar, Sal, Willie, all those people had as many false passports as you, as many airplanes or more than you, as much money or much more than you, and they couldn't quit, and you mm -hmm. did. I said, because to me, this was just another product. This is just another company that we had, and when I realized what the danger that it was going to start, that it was happening now to kids, Mm -hmm. then it was not who I was. Mm -hmm. And that's how I walk away. But anyway, we meet the people. They wanted to open up a, a banana company and buy a ship. They wanted to bring bananas. So I thought. Later on, I found out that banana was nowhere near their intentions. Hmm. But of course, I did not. <laughs> I was so naive. I had no clue. Right. I mean, I'm 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Now I'm 21. I mean, I got braces, glasses. I mean, if you look up a picture of a nerd in a dictionary, there was my picture. <laughs> that's what I look like. <laughs> And, uh, <clears throat> but I went to a party. I went to a party. So in the meantime, and I'm just fast forwarding, otherwise, you know, we'd be here for days and then nobody would buy the book. Can I, can I, can I clarify something really sure, quick? Clarify. This is, is this the Median drug cartel? Right. Is that the, na the name of it? Right. Okay. 
Medellin drug cartel. But we're going to get to that part. So what happens is that uh, I start making money and I go to a party. So mm-hmm. needless to say, you know, my friends change, right? You call oh, friends yeah. change. Yeah. No longer are all my deadbeat, broke friends. I start now with the people that I wanted to be with, the people that everybody wanted to be with, the Hollywood celebrities, the rich, the famous. Mm. And I went to a party and I saw a federal judge that gave people a lot of time snorting cocaine. Mm. And I said to myself, you know, there was no God mm. when I came from Cuba. And now it, there's no moral. Hmm. So when these people started to ask me to run all their operations in the United States, I was 21 years old. Wow. I finally gave him, but I'll tell you how I give him. But talking about Medellin Drug Cartel, so it's a pot. When I got started, this was the group that eventually would be known as the Medellin Drug Cartel, a name given to us by the federal government. And then we'll, we'll name that enemy, the head of that enemy, Pablo Escobar. Mm-hmm. Right? He was the most obnoxious, the loudest. Many things besides being the richest, which he was by no means, nor the most powerful. Yeah. He was the most violent, and he was just the worst human being that got walked this earth. So when they started to ask me, we want you to handle all our operations in the United States, I'm like, I had no idea. It's very complicated, but the cliff note is I came up with this great idea. How am I going to get rid of these people? I'm happy opening this foreign bank account. I'm happy opening a banana company where I'm the president, and I own a percentage of it. So I'm this is more than I ever dreamed in my right. life. I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell these guys it was for them, and I will become the fifth. So I came up with this idea that I'm going to go up to this guy. Now, this dead broke kid, I'm going to go up to him and I'm going to say, you guys want me to handle everything for you? Fine. I want equal partnership. And you got to put up my part of the money because I ain't got no money. At this time, they're bringing in between 50 and 100 kilos a month. Thanks for tuning in to 180, brought to you by One Way. Make sure to follow, like, and share our show with your people. Now, back to the show. Mm-hmm. So in Colombia at that time, a kilo was $22,000. So if you think about it, 100 kilos, 22 kilo, that's $2.2 million. Right. Between that's... five guys, you're talking about $400,000 a piece. 400, man. I mean, I maybe had $400. Yeah, yeah. So I knew that there's no way they're going to accept that. Yeah. They're going to tell me to turn around. They're going to kick me in the rear end and I'm going to <laughs> get a, a, a kick all the way back to Miami. <laughs> so I did. I proposed that to him. And then I went and I went back to the hotel and they were, they sent the chauffeur to pick me up to take me to Miami. In the morning, they're like, hey, Manuel wants to talk to you. And I'm like, maybe we forgot to talk about something. I'm like, okay. So I go. Yeah. And they looked at me and they're like, man, uh, man said, I talked with my partners and we agree. We'll let Whoa. you. We'll let you become equal partners, and we'll put up your money until you create enough capital to put up your own capital. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm like, holy cow! <laughs> I never seen cocaine in my life. Yeah. So you literally just kind of fell into this. I mean, yeah, it's not fell is were... a really neat word. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And I'm like, I, I immediately I try to back up. Yeah. I'm like, look, thank you so much for being so generous, but really, is this what you want to do? I mean, I'm handling your money. You don't want me handling your money, handling your drugs. And uh, they would say nothing. I said, plus, I don't know anything. I'm 21 years old, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Man says, I believe you got what it takes. Wow. Well, within six months, we we're bringing in five, 600 kilos a month, and I was making between one and $3 million profit a month. My and, goodness. And needless to say, my life just skyrocketed. Yeah, I had mansions, I had jets, I had million dollars worth of cars. I dated the most beautiful women that walked this earth. See, I had to join a cartel to get a date, and hmm. then I dated beautiful women. Hmm. But <laughs> but I was so miserable. I'm 21 years old, 
I make between a million and three million dollars a month. Now let me put that in perspective for you. That's nineteen seventy-seven money. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe multiply four or five times. I have jets, mansion, yachts. I date the most beautiful woman in the world, but I want to die. Hmm. I want to die because, you know, we we all believe in this pseudo American dream. Hmm. You know, you have more money, you have cars, you have extra houses. Uh, then you you reach the American dream. Hmm. But the truth of the matter, the real American dream was the American dream of what I call the greatest generation, the World War II generation. Right? They they Worked all their lives. They had marriage problems, but divorce was not an option. They'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. Mm. They, uh, their word was their bond. Mm. They hated the war, but to serve was an honor. Mm-hmm. And they worked all their lives, educated their children, retired. Many didn't take a vacation, and they were happy. They yeah. were fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't happy making that kind of money. and But it really wasn't even, looking back, it wasn't even about the money. Mm. It was about that. Next thrill. I mm-hmm. think I, I, it was more of a agony of victory and the tr- thrill of defeat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked out a deal with the government of Bolivia. And uh, if you saw the movie Scarface, the guy that killed Tony Montana, who many people think was re- still real. And uh, he was my partner in Bolivia, Roberto Suarez. And uh, instead of making one to three million, we we're going to make it like seven million dollars a month. Oh my gosh. So we worked out this deal. We went to get it. Things went away. I crashed in the, I got on an airplane, which I never did, but because back then you just don't catch a flight from in Latin America mm-hmm. very easily, you know. So I had a meeting with Somoza, the president of Nicaragua, that I had to get to. I got on the airplane because I thought nothing could happen to me. I remember telling Manny that I'm going to go do this. And he's like, you're out of your mind. You make more money than, than, than anyone can ever dream of. And yet why take a risk? Why do something? What we're doing is like automatic. I mean, mm. at the end, there we're bringing in seven, eight hundred kilos every month right through Miami International Airport mm. with customs agents. Mm. So you know, we had every level of the government. Mm. I tell people there was three people I couldn't bribe. I was never able to bribe a DEA, FBI, or a federal judge. Now I tried. I tried like crazy. <laughs> Trust me, all the way to the White House. Politicians, I have very little, very little steam for them. Yeah, yeah. And today, even worse. But uh, we crashed, and uh, when I crashed, the attorney general came to see me, and he's like, look, don't waste my time. How much money to get out? $250,000 for your leave. I had people stationed in different parts of the world with a million dollars. That Their mm-hmm. only job was to wait for a phone call with a code to deliver X amount of money to get somebody else out of a jam in a big, yeah. in a big event. Yeah, wow. So I tell them, I said, call this number and say these words, and you have your money here the, mm-hmm. the next day, and they did. So I went back and told the pilots today that, hey, look, everything is cool. I just bribed the attorney general. We're getting ready. They're going to take us to Panama. They're going to rough us up a little bit to make it look good in front of the DEA. Mm. But don't worry. Mm. We're on our way to Costa Rica. I had just spent a million dollars getting the president of Costa Rica elected. Mm. So we went to Panama City, and they lined us up in a big conference room about this wide but longer. They had Mm. just busted us with 200 kilos of cocaine. Mm. So the pilots broke weak. Said that, hey, not only is George not a cattle owner, like we have pretended we're looking for cattle farming. We landed, didn't know what was in the airplane, right? And uh, anyway, he's the biggest drug dealer in America. So they took us in a dungeon, and for 20-some odd days, they tortured us day and night to the point that I bled every time I took a, uh, a pee for five years. Oh, my gosh. And uh, It's horrible. 
But you know what? It, and what was the thing about it, it was physical punishment. It doesn't really do any good because after a while, it doesn't hurt anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, But I kept looking at this guy across the bar. There was only one guy. And this place looked literally like Le, Le Mis. Uh, the prison was there from the 1800s. He had been condemned for 50 years. And it was a dungeon. No toilet, no nothing. Mm. And uh, they would come in two, three times a day and beat us. Mm. But I kept looking at this guy across the bars, and he kept, like, licking him, the bars. Mm. Come to find out, I've been there six months, lost his mind. And I looked at Harold, this guy that was with me, and I'm like, we got to get these people to kill us. Mm. They're not going to let us go. Mm. We're not going to break. I don't want my parents or anybody taking care of me because I'm sitting in a wheelchair. Mm. So let's just get him to kill us. So we come up with this plan to threaten Noriega and tell him that, uh, tell the God before they came in, listen, tell Noriega that he needs to kill us because if he doesn't kill me, he knows that we got the power that whenever I get out, we're going to kill him. Mm. And then uh, we knew that that was it. Mm. There was just no way that he would not take that lightly. Mm. But he came over the next day and we're like laughing. And I'm like, man, this guy's sadistic. You know, he's Crazy. like going to kill us and he's laughing first. Yeah. And yeah. all he said to us is like, why are you mad at me? I didn't tell on you. It was your pilots. Yeah. And number two, he said, you bribed the wrong guy. Mm. So I'm like, how much? He's like, 250. And, and I'm like, I just paid two fifty for four, and now you want two fifty for two? Is mm. this like a one for all price here, Panama? Mm. He didn't smile much. We did. We paid it. He ended up, yeah, taking us to the airport two days later, and then we're waiting to go to Costa Rica. And then uh, Interpol came and and got us, picked us up like a sack of potatoes, took us to Miami. And in Miami, I was charged with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America. Mm. I was given a bond. They proposed a bond of $7 million in 1979, which I had just turned 23 years old. Wow. I didn't have a traffic ticket. I didn't have anything. Yeah. If, if I could just go back, I do have a couple of questions uh, leading up to this point. If we could actually just go back to the grocery store just for a moment. And when you first discovered that this place was a major drug cartel, why did you decide to stay? Well, it wasn't a major drug cartel. You know, like you got to transport yourself back to 1976. Yeah. Okay. It, cocaine. Drug cartel did not exist. And cocaine, I mean, the biggest problem in Miami, in, in the United States, was marijuana. Mm -hmm. Heron up north, and the rest was marijuana. So it was, there was no violence like it started shortly after I went to prison. Mm. I mean, everybody admired me. Mm -hmm. You know, and we'll talk about that God complex later, but yeah, yeah, yeah. because it was a different world altogether. This, this was something for the rich and famous, the movie mm -hmm. stars, celebrities. Mm -hmm. There was no crack. There was no kids. There was no violence. So when I find out, they tell me that they're drug dealers. I'm not going to sell drugs. I'm an accountant. Yeah. So that, so that particular piece did not necessarily affect your conscience at that point. But, but the interesting thing about it, here's the thing. So what was my conscience? That's a good question. What was my conscience? So there's a big difference between what we think is morality and what we think is your religious conscience mm -hmm. as to my conscience was, I don't lie. Mm -hmm. I help everyone I can. I'm a man of my word and I'll die for my word. Mm -hmm. That was my conscience. Mm -hmm. God didn't play no role mm -hmm. at all. Would not yeah. play no role for many, many years, mm -hmm. you know, because what God, mm -hmm. where is God? Mm -hmm. You know, all the teachings I got in school, Mm -hmm. Really, what became the foundation of how I started to see the world? Mm -hmm. Don't hurt anyone. Mm -hmm. Don't hurt anyone innocent. Help everyone you can. Mm -hmm. You know, 
so people in the cartel, in that group, nobody used cocaine. Mm -hmm. No one. I mean, it was a stigma. You know, it wasn't until the violence came on and then things started to change and then crack went on and, and families got devastated. Yeah. So that whole world changed. But in 1976, actually, if people found out that I was a drug lord, they were like happy. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. We're making millions. We're doing $75 million a month in 1977. Mm -hmm. The uh, Federal Reserve Bank in Miami has more cash than all of them combined. Mm. You know, we're building left and right. This sleepy town is becoming, you know, what it is today. Mm. It was just a different, very, very fast. Mm. Uh, actually, cocaine was looked upon as something very glamorous. And at that time, you could buy pharmaceutical cocaine from Merck, Shark, and Don. Dentists would uh, have access to it. Mm. And then, of course... Our greatest drink, Coca-Cola. Right. They say that. So it was just very, very different. And I want to make sure we get this caught. It was 95, they said approximately 95% of the cocaine that was in the United States was brought through. No, it's actually 94.6. Yeah. <laughs> they said okay. that we're bringing in 95% of all the cocaine that came into America. <laughs> well, if you saw the Netflix Cocaine Cowboy Kings of Miami, mm -hmm. the first episode, there was the first major drug operation in Miami was Operation Video Canary. Mm. Right? They arrested 130 people. They were all selling grams and ounces of discos. Right? I was bringing in six, 700 kilos for two years already. Mm. And the DA didn't know my name. Mm. The government had no idea who I was or mm. who we were. Mm. You know? Yeah. That's, man, that's just a lot to, to, to process. Um, and, and so I, I do have a question, actually, more so for my personal interest. Talk to me about the cougar. I mean, oh. wh wh who, why do you need a cougar? You know, and th and I got my cougar before Tony Montana hit his. <laughs> I had a big ranch, and I just thought it was nice and exciting to have a cougar. I mean, why Jeremiah, not? I even gave him a biblical name. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my god. But uh, I ended up buying him from uh, a wildlife officer. Yeah. And then I don't know how much money in attorney fees I, I spent to be able to get a license. Yeah. To be able to get him. I just thought it was just cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the budget that you had to buy off people, your presidents, judges, politicians. Can you talk to us a little bit? I mean, a million dollars a month. A million dollars a month. And it wasn't a budget. That's roughly what it worked out. It could have been five hundred thousand one month, a million plus. It's just whatever. We anybody that had anything, I paid. Anybody that I felt at one given point later on or at any time, yeah, could benefit us. Yeah, we paid them. Mm -hmm. So state judges mm -hmm. help get them all elected. You know, uh, presidents in country, people that worked at radar, sheriffs. Mm -hmm. We bought many, many sheriffs. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, mm -hmm. attorneys, uh, just everybody you can ever imagine. Mm -hmm. Political figures, a dime a dozen. Mm -hmm. Billion dollars to become president of the United States. Think about it. It ain't $20 donations. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I I went back. So there's, there's a part that we... Uh, so I, the my first prison uh, time was a blast. Mm. I mean, I really did. I had fun in prison. I made a lot, of, the same amount of money, spent half as much. Mm. I had a girlfriend. So oh my gosh. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, then I get transferred to uh, Eglin Air Force Base. I get sent out to a base and for two years I went in and out of the base. Mm. Literally like, I, they used to salute me like if I was part of the generals. I bribe. I didn't bribe. I was really nice to the wife of a general. And then I told her we were having problems getting in for visits early in the morning because you have to line up and all mm -hmm. that. So she gave me a pass. Mm -hmm. I bought a brand new van, and I had this girl who then became my wife come pick me up every day. I bought a house right outside the base, and I went home every day mm -hmm. for two years mm -hmm. until I got released. And when I got released, I went back to the same thing. I didn't have to. I was a multimillionaire. 
And it, I and I look back as to why because I didn't even like what I was doing. The right. world had drastically right. changed now, but it was more of like, listen, you didn't get me right. You know, mm. you set me up because when I get arrested in Panama, there is no drugs, right? Noriega sold them. They take my case in front of the Southern District, the Middle District, and the Northern District of Florida, and none of them would indict me because there was nothing to indict me, right? Then they take me to Mobile, Alabama, which I had ne- not Mobile, Macon, Georgia, which I had never been in my life. Mm-hmm. And they said that I was partners with the guy that I got arrested with, and I was the guy supplying his cocaine three years back when I only met the guy, like literally 30 days before we got arrested. Mm-hmm. So it was more like, I'm going to get even. Mm-hmm. But the world had changed. Mm. Now is when my morality kicked in. Mm. Now is when this is not who I am. Mm. You know, mm. my godfather used to say, if you need to carry a gun to deal with someone, you should deal with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, now you have to carry guns, bodyguards. It, it was very, very different. Now, mm-hmm. 87 versus 1978. Right. 85, I'm sorry. So prior to that, mm. my first stint, prior to getting arrested, my mother had no idea what I was. Mm. Right? She thought I was a business maker. We had a lot of business. I traveled all over the world. Now she knew. Hmm. And my mother was the, this is the uh, lesson for mothers out there, parents. My mother was the best tough love I ever, the ultimate yeah. manner to be tough love. My mother did not stop one second to tell me, son, what you're doing doesn't please God. So my mother taught me what true north was. She told me where, where was right and where was wrong. And when I deviated, like, like many do, not like to the level I did, but I mm. knew where to come back to. Yeah, wow, that's really powerful. <clears throat> and I was very, very miserable. Mm. And now I had a baby girl. Mm. And uh, I didn't like the world. The world when I came out of prison was a lot different than when I went to prison. The people were different. Mm. And uh, now there was crack. Now there was free base. You know, I was struggling. I mm. was struggling with, I don't need the money. And I wasn't doing nothing at this time. Literally, I would make a million dollars a month for either say send the plane or don't send the plane. That's it. Mm. And still the payoff to very pro- high profile figures. Mm. And, uh, you know, money was nothing because, like, I remember one time in my office. Uh, so I had a sofa that was catty corner, just like, like this, right? And then, so the maid comes one day and says, hey, can you move the sofa so I can dust behind it? I said, sure. Mm. And she moved it, and there was a bag. With $750,000 that I had no idea how long I'd been there, who it belonged to, or who dropped it. Wow. So money was not really the motivating factor. It, it's just that when, when, when you cross, you know, in life, we define lines. And I tell people, when you cross certain lines that you say you're never going to cross, it's so difficult to come back. Yeah. You know, yeah. listen, no, no junkie starts out by shooting, you know, an ounce of heroin, right? right? No alcoholic starts drinking by drinking a gallon his first time. Right. Right? Is is that progressive? Hmm. Same thing with infidelity. Same thing with pornography, with all of this. Hmm. At the end of the day, like I, I say, I'm convinced, I think the only problem in America and in the world is that we have a, we come into this world with this hole in our chest, this hmm. hunger hmm. for meaning, for purpose, yeah. for defining value that we think and society tells us that it can be filled with those substances, alcohol, pornography, fidelity. But at the end of the day, to me, I realized it was only Christ that could fill that hole. Wow. It was only he that could give me meaning. Because as I shared to you, when I forfeited over $60 million to the government, it was the first time in my life that I began to find that my life had purpose. Because, you know, we all face a mirror in the morning Hmm. or at night. We look at the ceiling and we got to ask ourselves, do we like what we see? Mm -hmm. 
do we really like what we see? Or what is the purpose for our lives? Mm. You know, what is my existence? I, I always wonder why I adore my mother. I have my mother in a pedestal. But yet, why did I treat women with such disdain? I didn't physically or verbally abuse anyone. But to me, it, they were just a transaction. Hmm. I want this from you and you get this from me. And when we finish with this transaction, hmm. why? Mm-hmm. When I adore my mother, mm-hmm. when I had such respect for women mm-hmm. like I do today. And, hmm. uh, you know, it's... It's a series of things that when you do cross that line, you just, you just, it's slippery and it just goes and there's no stopping. It's very difficult to put the brakes. But the, I guess the main message that I bring and, and it's what the movie that I'm trying to do now mm-hmm. and is, you know, why with the producer with Netflix, I turned him down for three years before I agreed to be on the show on that documentary because I, I tell people, listen, every choice we make becomes part of the, of the story of our life. The question is what type of story we want to tell. But I believe that the great thing about America and about Christ and faith is that we can redeem ourselves. Mm. And and our story does not have to end the way that it begins, mm. that we can change. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Can you take us to the night that your daughter came to the ranch? At this time, I was the, one of the largest quarter horse breeders in the country. I got into the horses. I was already struggling with, I have to do something, right? Uh Prior to that, this guy that used to breed to my horse, he would come to the ranch, and I knew him for a long time. He used to be an old pot smuggler, and he walked away. And mm. I would say to him, hey, Lazaro, how was it that you walked away? And uh, he's like, man, it's like being pregnant. I'm like, really? <laughs> he's like, yeah, you're either pregnant or you're not. <laughs> mm. You're either in it or you're not. And if you're not in it, you just got to move away. You got to on and on. He'd have this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it always intrigued me because I, I just, you know, I had it. I just really was... But the defining moment was I was partying in my house with this Hollywood celebrities, hmm. and my little daughter came, my ex-wife brought her uh, that night, and I told the maid, I said, just keep her in her room. In the morning, I'll go have breakfast with her. And I uh, went back to my party. But about 2 o'clock in the morning, by God's ordinance and uh, plan, she got out of her room and came to my bedroom. Now, I'm going to tell you why this was almost impossible. I would have given anyone... A million dollars if you could get within 20 feet of me. Because mm. that's how many bodyguards I had. And because it was at that time, mm. anyone in Los Angeles, 86, 87, Miami was considered the most violent city in the world. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a very, very dangerous time. Mm. So anyway, and she started knocking on the door. Daddy, it's Crystal. I mean, she was very, she's a baby, year old, mm. not even two years old yet. And I began to feel so dirty. Mm. I mean, like instantly. And it was like uh, I had this feeling, and here's the and and this is and things are going through my head now a million miles an hour. Here's the only thing in my life that's pure, and she's reaching out to her dad. And I can't open the door because I would contaminate her. Mm. I told the woman to get out of the room, out of the window, and I went into my shower. I tried to scrub the filth. It wouldn't. I I, I couldn't get inside. So I went into the beds, and here's a guy that the news media used to say eyes run through my veins. I went under my sheets, and I was shaking and shivering. Mm. And uh, all of a sudden, when I thought that she had gone to bed. I went outside to get water and she was by the floor crying. And I said, my life will change today. Wow. Yeah. All I knew is this. If I'm going north, I'm going to go south. Mm-hmm. If I'm going east, I'm going to go west. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to move out of my environment because in Miami, I was a king. Yeah. You know, and that's what they call the series uh, Cooking Cow Kings of Miami. So I was considered the first king. I had Now I've been to prison. I have been tortured. 
You know, I, I was the guy that created the entire drug, cocaine drug trade in, in America. So all of that is I moved out of Miami. Hmm. And uh, so I went to my ranch. My desperation was so enormous that, so I'll give you this, just a minute. The moment that I made that phone call, I'm out, hmm. I knew that I probably had 30 days to live. Hey, friends, we've left you on a cliffhanger, the precipice of Jorge's life from here on out. Listen in two weeks to hear the rest of Jorge's crazy God story, like the karate teacher's bold challenge and Jorge's coming clean, including a $60 million surrender. Best way to get the show is to follow us on your favorite pod player so it shows up in your library or hit the link in the show notes to join our email list. To send off Jorge Valdez part one, we have Aaron Foster, who has compiled a haiku inspired by his story. You can find Aaron's poetry on Insta at keyhole.poems. And of course, as usual, the link is in our show notes. Running from myself ne'er would have ceased had Christ not left me with a limp. O crippled Jacob, our wounds the same. Bodies slowed, named anew. Redeemed. 180 is a production of One Way Ministries.